Walter Valper, the Tumor Brass, of course, and Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making not his weekly uh, Monday appearance, nor merely a bonus midweek appearance, but a double bonus midweek appearance. Dave Cameron is the managing editor of Fangraphs. He's also the guest on this program. Why is Dave Cameron making his third appearance on Fangraphs Audio this week? Because since the last recording of Fangraphs Audio, roughly 24 hours ago, Jimmy Rollins was traded. Howie Kendrick was traded. Brandon McCarthy was signed. And also Matt Kemp was traded. Also Matt Kemp was traded. And that is uh, merely, those are merely transactions involving the Los Angeles Dodgers. We discuss uh, all those moves and more. Furthermore, uh, Cameron edits one of my posts at Fangraphs.com. He edits it in real time for the benefit of the listener. I think this is a disaster. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron for the third time this week. And it begins right now. Yes, good. Yes, you are busy because there have been so many transactions. <laughs> Too many. Yeah. Mo- Too many. The, the most? The, I mean, I, the... I do not ever remember a winter meetings travel day. Usually the Thursday is, uh, you know, when people leave and, and catch their flights home. I don't ever, I mean, there was the pools deal a few years ago that broke like right as everyone was leaving. Uh, it's not unheard of for there to be deals Thursday morning, but. This money is, is is very unusual. So what's it? Wait, so is all this happening at that hotel? Uh, well, I mean, they're all still there, yes. <laughs> and so wait, so even though the winter meetings are done, I mean, this is a strange logistical question, but do they just stay a couple extra days? Can they do that? No, they don't need this. St- I mean, you know, you, they don't have to be in person to complete a trade, right? Like all this stuff is done over text and email now, anyway. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the the actual gathering at the hotel is kind of useless, at least in terms of transactions. Like you know, for the Rule Five draft and you know, so the various galas and awards and uh, drinking that goes on. You know, the socialization aspect is valuable, but you know, they could make all these trades back at home. You don't think, do you? Is there is there no advantage to having a face to face discussion? There's some. I mean, it's probably somewhat helpful for, uh, you know, say, like, Scott Boris wants to talk to someone about Max Scherzer, and they can go have a conversation in person and be like, yeah, Scott, you're, you're really crazy, and say it to his face. But, you know, <laughs> they could mostly say that over the phone, too. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, so I don't even – do you have a sense of where we should start, Cameron? <laughs> I mean, the Matt Kemp trade is the big one, but, you know, there's, like, 16 to pick from, so. Wait, okay, so it is it is sort of the, – it's the big one in terms of the amount of <laughs> – uh, money or the amount of value, not, not value, the obligations that are trading hands. Yeah, and I think this is probably the kind of deal that we're going to be uh, not necessarily known for, but our take on this is going to be different than everyone else's. Uh, Ken Rosenthal, who I have a lot of respect for and I like, uh, just wrote a piece calling this a coup for the Padres mm-hmm. and, you know, a, a steal, I think is the word he used. I think this is a disaster <laughs> so uh, for San Diego uh, and, a, and a steal for the Dodgers. And so I think on a lot of deals, you can kind of look at it and say, like, oh, Rick Porcello for UNF Cespedes. That kind of helps both teams. And, you know, you can see both sides. I think the mainstream audience is going to see this as a fantastic move for San Diego, while I think they'd have set their franchise back several years. Okay. And uh, all right. So let's talk. Well, how, how much is left on Kemp's contract? $107 million. The Dodgers are going to pay $32 million of that. Okay, so the, that means that the uh, the Padres will pay Matt Kemp 
75 million over five years. Five years. Oh, so that's so that's okay. So that's 15 million a year. Correct. Um, which is not uh, uh, well on an average annual basis. That's not that's not crazy if you're talking about Metcap next year and the year after maybe. Yeah, it's fair basically. Right. Maybe right. maybe slightly uh, slightly below market value considering the right-handed power is overpriced. Okay. Uh, and it's going to be a disaster, though. Uh, why? Well, I think if you look at it from the Padres' perspective, they are essentially getting significant short-term value from Kemp uh, in exchange for taking on uh, a fairly large contract that probably will not be a bargain in a couple of years. And if you look at the Padres' roster, they have almost no chance of turning this into Kemp's short-term value into anything other than some additional ticket sales and maybe, uh, you know, a guy to put on the poster and on the season tickets and say, come watch this guy play, because this team is bad, and they don't have any real chance of not being bad. I mean, maybe they'll be 500 if they really overperform and everyone stays healthy, but uh, Ian Kennedy's a free agent at the end of the year. Tyson Ross and Andrew Kaffner are free agents at the end of next year. Joaquin Benoit is a free agent at the end of the year. Uh, they get a lot of holes. They don't have a shortstop. They don't have a third baseman. Uh, they just traded, you know, the guy who was their starting catcher, even if they – I think Rivera would have, you know, split time with him. Okay, you just lost a catcher. Uh, you know, the, Yonder Alonso is not a good first baseman. Jed Jorko is coming off a bad year. Who knows what Cameron Maben is? Like, this is just not a team that is going to contend in the National League. Yeah, I'm uh, looking at the roster. Uh, it is rough, I would say. Uh, it's bad. This is this is a bad team that just got slightly less bad right. by a little bit. And so. If if you were to give them the benefit of the doubt, what what do you see as their the Padres front office? First of all, th- this is a newish Padres front office, is that right? Yeah, AJ Prellers, the GM, was hired from the Texas Rangers, where he was uh, John Daniels' kind of top lieutenant or one of his top lieutenants, by, maybe behind Thad Levine, a top lieutenant in Texas the last couple of years. Which I think, if you're looking for a trend, you know, you can say Preller was part of a front office that uh, two years ago uh, went hard after Prince Fielder. Uh, and, uh, Shinsu Chu, uh, and I guess last year was, uh, Shinsu Chu, and, uh. So wait, the, 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 the common, the, the, co- the common thread here is that these guys don't care about defense. <laughs> I think if you're, if you're looking at it and saying, uh, you know, what can we learn about AJ Preller, if you're involved in the acquisitions of Prince Fielder, Shinsu Chu, and Matt Kemp in, in fairly close order, you care about offense almost exclusively. Yeah, in, in a sort of, sp- Specific definition of offense. I guess Chu probably breaks the mold on that, but he didn't. But um, they they were all they all sort of seem like uh, vulnerable uh, offensively in some ways too. I mean, wasn't Fielder's power declining, and Chu was sort of based off of like a what appeared to be sort of a post what ought to have been like a post peak um, renaissance or emergence, I guess. And uh, Kemp obviously has had offensive problems, although he's maybe he solved some of them last year, or or was healthy enough that um, he was uh, you know able to produce something something like himself. Yeah, I mean I think in all three cases, uh, all three hitters were above, uh, all three players were above average hitters, maybe not as good as their reputations, uh, you know, so maybe slightly overrated, but still good hitters uh, with significant defensive flaws, and overall probably projected to be slightly above average players, maybe three win guys. 
uh, three and a half if you just don't care at all about defense that you think like, you know, there's basically no spread in between, you know, a good defender and a bad defender. Uh, but you know, not stars. These are not elite players uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but they're paid like elite players and they kind of have the reputation of it because people still evaluate them, uh, based on home runs and RBIs like this is 1982. Uh, okay, alright, so, so back to if you're giving Preller at all the benefit of the doubt, what, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, they're paid. They're paid. They're paid to make baseball decisions, and presumably they've, uh, uh, you know, they, I mean, certainly they've been in the game for years. Yeah, I mean, so it seems like the counter argument uh, is essentially that Matt Kemp is a star, mm-hmm. and this team didn't have one. Uh, that's kind of the the theme that I've seen kind of pulsing through from the other side is, you know, they had Tony Gwynn for a while and then they had Adrian Gonzalez and, you know, they've kind of had like a face of the franchise type and they didn't have that anymore. So now they do. So, you know, Matt Kemp isn't that good. So now you have a bad face of the franchise and it's not very clear at all that you actually need one of those. Like if you look at the Rays and the A's and a bunch of teams that have won, they haven't had a face of the franchise. The A's just got rid of every personal or every person on their team who could possibly be considered the face of their franchise uh, and they're still probably going to try and win next year. Uh, while the Phillies have, you know, tons of marketable stars and are terrible. Uh, I think the idea that you need, uh, you know, a big name player who's been in all-star games and can sell tickets is just not true. Now, if if I'm not mistaken, it does seem as though the the ticket argument does not necessarily work either. It's like maybe something that would work for an early season spike. But but aren't fans generally reacting to win loss records? Yeah. Especially if we ignore the Tampa Bay Rays. There's basically no evidence that uh, you'll get a sustained significant attendance boost from acquiring a player who's not going to perform well. Like, you know, uh, you can look at, you know, the the Mariners last year signing Robinson Cano. They got a significant attendance boost in part because they won 87 or 88 games. Uh, they didn't get a huge attendance boost early in the year in April and May. Their attendance was still pretty miserable. But once people saw that Cano had actually made the team better, uh, their attendance in the second half of the season went up quite a bit. And, uh, the you know, they uh, drew fairly well down the stretch. If Matt Kemp made the Padres better, then he would help their attendance. But Matt Kemp doesn't really make the Padres better, so they can't really count on a significant revenue gain uh, from having him around because he's not going to make them that good. Well, so from what you say about Preller uh, and uh, some of the moves he's made in the past, uh, it seems as though that now we can consider the Padres to be the main competitors uh, with the Mariners for these sort of uh, lumbering uh, power power hitters with maybe some offensive holes, though. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think there's some parallels, certainly, between San Diego and Seattle, and both play in significant pitchers' parks. They're, they're Jeff the... Sullivan's favorite two teams. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. They're, one is where Jeff Sullivan grew up, and one is where Jeff Sullivan kind of resides. He's in Portland, so he's in between. Right. Uh, no, I mean, I think you know both teams have uh, you know West Coast ballparks that are not conducive to offense, and I've had significant trouble luring free agents, and both teams have kind of made a point of overspending to try and acquire right-handed power because they believe it's something that they can't easily acquire and doesn't, uh, n- you know, produce itself uh, naturally in their own environment. I think, you know, my counter-argument to all of these moves for both franchises has always been that this isn't a thing that you need. And I think David Forst in his Q&A with Eno Soros on the site this morning kind of said the same thing from their perspective, which is one that I'm more likely to agree with, is you don't need any certain thing. Uh, wins are a commodity. Runs are a commodity. They don't have to come in some kind of perfect form. Mm-hmm. And if you're dead set on saying, I need you know, speed, or I need right-handed power, or I need you know, velocity from a left-handed reliever, you're probably going to get taken to the cleaners because you've just uh, reduced the pool of things that you can buy 
and uh, have allowed other teams to take advantage of your narrow-sightedness. Right, right, right. So you're essentially – so, I mean, one maneuver is either to anticipate the market or wait for things to settle and then uh, look for the uh, look for the cracks in the market. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, your goal should always just be to collect as many assets as possible uh, and put as good a team on the field as you can, given your uh, kind of limitations from roster spots and payroll and, uh, you know, the amount of talent you can acquire based on the talent you already have in trade. Uh, so I think, you know, from the Padres' perspective, rather than saying we need a franchise player, we need a slugger, we need a right-handed hitter to justify our lineup, and we need to score more runs, whatever the we need is, they need to win more games. And how you get there, there's a million ways to skin that cat. When you say this is the only way that we can do this is to get this thing that we don't have, you have missed the forest from the trees. Right, okay. Uh, uh, let's. Matt Kemp comes from the Dodgers, who have made – no fewer than four notable trades, is that right? I think they've made nine in the last three weeks. Okay. And, but I'm saying four literally since we spoke yesterday. Because uh, yeah, I don't think Jimmy... Well, it depends on how you break them down, right? Like the Howie Kendrick trade could be a separate trade, except for that it was kind of a three-way trade because they traded the guy they got right, from the D. Gordon yeah, trade. Yeah. And, you know, so it's almost all like one big giant trade. But you know, several components to a whole middle infield slash pitching slash outfield makeover. Right, right. Uh, the first thing they did was send D. Gordon to the Marlin to the Marlins yes, uh, in exchange. Well, and also I guess uh, Dan Heron, Miguel Rojas, and they're getting back. They received back uh, a number of players, a uh, a favorite of Carson Sestouli's, Austin Barnes. Yep. Um, another one who sort of fits that mold in Enrique Hernandez, who is is sort of a well, he's kind of like a a bit of like Emilio Bonifacio, but younger. Which is kind of what D. Gordon is. Right. And then, right. And so that, yeah. And then, and then of course they also got Andrew Haney, who they almost immediately, uh, traded to the Angels for Howie Kendrick. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, D. Gordon is problematic in terms of evaluation and, and maybe can be, uh, uh, sort of player who is polarizing in terms of evaluation because he has absolutely, well, I guess he has, I don't know if you call it, if it's necessarily a carrying tool. He has a 75 or 80, he has 75 or 80 speed. Yeah, he's uh, really fast. He's really fast. Uh, of course, um, so speed can help you um, run the bases well, can help you usually field well. He's uh, he's probably a below average second baseman, and he has historically not gotten on base for his base running uh, to matter that much. He's uh, maybe a, a weaker version of Billy Hamilton in some ways. Yeah, or Emilio Bonifacio. Or I think, like, I mean, I, I put out a tweet yesterday linking to their projections. They're almost exactly the same. Like, there's, and, you know, the Marlins had Emilio Bonifacio back in 2011, I think, when he had almost exactly the year that D. Jordan had last year, uh, where his Babbitt spiked and he hit 300 and he stole a bunch of bases and he was worth three wins. Like, the, and he, he bunted his way out base. Like, the, you know, they saw this skill set work. Uh, three years ago, and now they're trying to acquire it again. Now, is there, is there any could, could D. Gordon have a better season than the one he just did, practically speaking? I mean, it's possible, but well, probably it, not. Right, right, right. I mean, because he's not—he's uh, you know—he's never hit more than what two or three home runs in a season yeah. ever in the minors, even. He, he has no power. Right, he has no power, and I, I mean, as soon as you say someone has no power, and literally, like this is two home runs tops a year, right. Ben Revere category, yeah, right. Uh, but what's the what's the what's reasonably speaking highest true talent level you could have and have zero power? 
I mean, I think if you were an elite defensive shortstop, right, like your Angleton Simmons or something, uh, you can get away with that kind of power and, and be a five or six foot player. Uh, I guess that's Ozzie Smith, maybe, like, uh, okay, some yeah, of yeah. The, the years where Ozzie Smith didn't hit at all or didn't hit for any power, but he drew walks and he was a great defender and he ended up in the Hall of Fame. But, you know. That's best uh, case scenario. That's, that's the absolute ceiling, uh, right. for this kind of player. D. Gordon's not an elite defensive second baseman, much less shortstop, and he doesn't walk. So you're taking away two of the things that Ozzie Smith did, uh, and you're saying, okay, maybe, maybe he's an average player. Uh, it's unlikely he's gonna be an above average player again, but I think, you know, you can stretch and say, he was a really good bunner, he had 20 bun hits last year, that could be a thing that's sustainable. He is a really good base runner. Perhaps the projections are regressing his base running too much. Uh, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that D. Gordon could be a, a major league average second baseman next year. You know, whether the Marlins should have paid this price for a major league average second baseman remains to be seen, especially when a pretty good second baseman and Howie Kendrick went for a fraction of what they gave up to get D. Gordon. Right. Okay. So that's the thing. Now, we, we've discussed in recent weeks, uh, even, you know, going back to the, the Hayward the Jason Hayward Shelby Miller deal, this um, this sort of calculations we have to do when a player who is more talented, when player A is more talented than player B, but player B has more cost-controlled years, right? So right. You, it's a question of looking at them, as you say, as a commodity, as an asset. Uh, in this particular case, uh, how many years we, uh, controlled years are we looking at for D. Gordon? Four years, but all of them at Super 2 arbitration salaries, so he's not going to be super cheap. And by the, you know, realistically, if we're right and he regresses uh, a little bit, but but he kind of has the salaries based off of what he did last year and then some raises, he's probably a non-tender candidate in two or three years. Okay, all right. And and Howie Kendrick, what's up with him? He's in the last year of his contract, going to make nine and a half million this year, and then the Dodgers could stick him with a qualifying offer. Right. So potentially he could be back next year at sixteen million, or they could get a draft pick if he leaves. I mean, just in terms of raw trade value, or, I mean or raw, yeah. So because you do the trade value series every year, yep. if you were to extend that to infinity, who would have ranked? Who would rank higher right now, D. Gordon or Howie Kendrick? Kendrick, uh, I think. Uh, okay, wait. The, so wait, let me interrupt. The all the Dodgers did was trade Andrew Haney for Howie Kendrick. Yes, but the the Marlins traded uh, D Gordon or uh, um, Andrew Haney plus a bunch of guys, including like Austin Barnes and uh, and Enrique Hernandez, who are potentially useful or at least good at avoiding the awful, which we know is yep. Andrew Friedman's really good at. Yep. And they got they got back. Well, I guess they also got back Dan Heron. Yeah, right. I, I, and I think the. So the the non-talent aspect in this is that the Marlins aren't paying anything for Gordon or Heron. The Dodgers are paying full freight for both players. So the Marlins kind of sold prospects for cash uh, in that if Heron doesn't retire, they get a free major league starting pitcher. If uh, And regardless of what Heron does, they get a free second baseman, and the Dodgers are paying Gordon's way. So, uh, you know, the Marlins are known for being occasionally cheap, and this seems like a, a case where perhaps the Marlins decided – they didn't love any of the guys they were giving up. They saw them probably all as role players that they could replace. Uh, so they get two major league pieces for nothing, uh, at least in terms of salary, and uh, you know four years of control of Gordon, uh, who they kind of like. Okay, it, and so there's two ways, obviously, the Marlins could go. And, uh, and uh, given their history, I would expect them – or they can either invest that money or keep that money. Uh, given their history, I would expect them to keep that money – uh, but at the same time, they just signed to Giancarlo Stanton to 
uh, a, more than a $300 million contract. Right, which doesn't pay him very much money in the next couple of years. <laughs> Most of it's backloaded. Okay. I mean, I do think, so, you know, like, the Marlins also then went out and traded uh, for Matt Latos, who's going to make, uh, I don't know, 10, 10 million bucks, something like that next year. Okay. Um, and, you know, they still need a first baseman, and they're being rumored to be in the, the market for guys like Justin Morneau and Michael Morse, who will probably make seven, eight, nine million, uh, something in that range. So I think, you know, the Marlins are probably going to spend the money that they're getting from the Dodgers, uh, whether they're going to spend it well is another question. Right. Yeah. So what were the – oh, they also signed um, – oh, sorry. They signed – you mentioned uh, – they made a trade for Matt Latos. Yes. And who else – did they acquire someone else too? No, just no. Matt Latos. Okay. So there are so many moves. It's, there uh, were so many moves. I was thinking maybe for a second Alfredo Simone, but Alfredo Simone's yeah, a different a different he, uh, <laughs> deal. He went, to, he went to Detroit. He went to Detroit, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. This is uh, this is difficult. Let's. Uh, oh, is Dan Heron going to retire? Because I think he's what he's from South Southern California. Uh, he's played for the Dodgers and the Angels. Um, is he going to retire? I, my guess is no. Okay. Uh, Ten million dollars is a lot of money. Uh, he made it pretty clear that he wanted to stay in LA, but I th- I think he was just trying to get the Dodgers to not trade him, and it backfired. I think they probably got the idea that they could trade him and, and maybe the uh, team acquiring him wouldn't have to pay him either and it would just you know be a way to force him into retirement. But my guess is he's going to say, you know, eight months away from my family for $10 million, do I really value time with my kids in a million and a half a month? <laughs> Probably not. Okay. Uh, let's see. The Dodgers also acquired Jimmy Rollins. They acquired Jimmy Rollins uh, maybe f- – uh, or maybe well, we don't know. We don't, we don't know yet because it's not completely done because that deal was kind of pending a third team, which is probably the Matt Kemp deal. Right. The rumor is that Zach Eflin, who's coming from San Diego, will be going to Philadelphia, uh, but it's not completely done. It's going to be some some kind of prospect, probably from one of the other two deals going to Phillies or Rollins, who will then play next to Howie Kendrick, who was acquired for one of the other pieces in the Marlin deal. So totally new. Well, they needed uh, they needed a shortstop, of course, after the departure yeah. of Hanley Ramirez, right, and Miguel Rojas. And God forbid they play. Uh, not uh, he actually had a good season, but Justin Turner is not really a shortstop. Yeah. Um. So they have they have a real one now, Jimmy Rollins. How much is he owed? Uh, I think eleven five for the final year of his contract. Twelve something like that. It's a, it's a reasonable contract, mm-hmm. not a. Not a huge deal. Rollins probably worth, I don't know, 15 or 16 on a one-year deal. Uh, and probably won't get a qualifying offer next year, so you're not factoring that in. Right. Uh, so Rollins is a little bit of a value, and given that there's not very many shortstops out there and that you get a one-year risk or kind of a, a low-risk one-year deal, uh, maybe you say on, you know, just on a one-year deal, maybe you'd pay 17 or 18 for Rollins. So he's a little bit of a bargain. I'd assume, I'd assume as well that uh, Jimmy Rollins is happy about it if he's interested in winning. Yeah, and he's been, uh, you know, Telling people they wouldn't use his no, wouldn't waive his no trade clause. He wanted to stay in Philadelphia. Uh, but I think, you know, they're going to have a really bad year this year if they sell off as many pieces as it looks like they're going to sell off. Uh, they could easily lose 100, 110 games. I don't know that Rollins would have been particularly happy hanging around in that environment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, so they have a, they have an, now there, there was sort of a, uh, a dearth of shortstops available at some point. Because I mean, Baltimore, well, they extended J.J. Hardy back sort of towards the end of the season, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Jed Lowry w- was available. Yeah, and it was Drupal Cabrera, who no one really sees as a shortstop anymore. Kind of fringy, uh, yeah. defensively fringy p- players. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, was this was this sort of was this uh, the best match for the Dodgers then ultimately? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, the A's acquiring Marcus Semien and then sticking him at shortstop, that kind of speaks to the lack of good young shortstops available right now. Uh, the teams who have them, you know, like the, the Mariners who have a couple of, of good young shortstops and Brad Miller and Chris Taylor are asking a lot for them and they're, you know, talking about hanging on to both of them. There just aren't that many guys out there who can play an effective big league shortstop and hit a little bit or, uh, you know, run the field or, you know, kind of man, man the position in a reasonable way. Uh, so I think from the Dodgers' perspective, they uh, found a guy to provide, you know, average, maybe slightly above average value, and they can look for their long-term answer uh, next year. Okay, the Angels traded away Howie Kendrick. The Angels, though, are also a team that we would expect to compete. Uh, I mean, if for no other reason than they have Mike Trout, but they yeah. uh, they have people around Mike Trout too. They have decent pitching staff. Uh, they now have Andrew Haney, which is good for them. And, of course, I think maybe their pitching staff was a little bit exposed after Garrett Richards went down last year. Um, that could be a lie. I could be lying to you right now. No, no, you're not. You're not lying. I'm their not pitching lying. staff was uh, lacked depth. Yeah, that's right. Um, except for, of course, Matt Shoemaker, an important member of that staff. Uh, point, uh, point being... Uh, what, what's what's their second base situation? Something about Josh Rutledge? Is that a true fact? Yeah, they acquired Rutledge uh, like a half an hour after they traded Kendrick away. Uh, almost certainly, they knew they could get Rutledge as kind of a you know stopgap fill-in. Rutledge isn't anything special. He didn't hit much in Colorado. He's not a very good defender. Uh, kind of a you know maybe zero to one win guy. Uh, you know if you really like him, you maybe push that up to a one and a half or something. But not a not a great player. Certainly a downgrade from Kendrick. Um, for the Angels, I think they're basically doing kind of the same thing the A's did with the Jeff Samarja trade of saying, you know, here's a one-year piece uh, that we're probably not going to be able to keep long-term, and we can turn that into, uh, you know, six-plus years of a guy that we like and think could be a core piece for us. So, so we'll get make ourselves a little bit worse this year. Um, hopefully it's not too big of a downgrade. Maybe it's only a couple of wins, uh, and we'll sacrifice those in the short term in exchange to save $10 million. Uh, which maybe could be reinvested in somewhere else in the roster to try and make those up, and we get you know five additional years uh, of a player we like. Is it easier to find? Is it easier to find? Well, what's Ken, what's Kendrick like a three three and a half win second yeah, baseman? Basically, yeah. And H- Haney, you think is what one and a half two wins right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the reports on Haney are kind of across the board. There's you know he was a top sixth or seventh pick in the draft just a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. he pitched pretty well in the minors, and there's. Some scouts who say, you know, this is still a, a quality top of the rotation, mid rotation guy. Um, and then there's some who are lacking, you know, thinks he lacks an out pitch and, and the fastball isn't as good as uh, it was in college and see him as kind of a number five. So I think how you feel about this trade for the Angels depends on whether you think Heaney's uh, going to turn into, you know, a good above average big league starter or just be another, you know, fringy lefty at the back end of a rotation. Right. Uh, are we done? Wait, are we done discussing Dodgers trades? I feel like there's more Dodgers trades. There's always more Dodgers trades. Yeah. I would have, I would guess like seven have happened since we were on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. Who else? Uh, who else have they acquired? Uh, we we discussed Kendrick. We discussed the seven players. I think I think we did. Uh, I we, think we, we did. We haven't said anything about Brandon McCarthy. He was not a trade, but went to the Dodgers for four years. Yes, they signed years. Brandon McCarthy. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they signed Brandon McCarthy for what was it? Four. four you said four. Four years, forty-eight million. Forty, forty-eight, uh, and that's. Uh, I mean, uh, what pitchers have we seen signed for those terms? Well, so Irvin Santana just got four years and fifty-four million. Wait, are you, just, are you joking? When did that happen? Like right before we went on the air. Ugh, God, yeah, I turned around for a second. Yeah, and literally this morning, as I was writing up pieces, uh, things were happening as I was writing them, and I would just be like, "Well, 
as I wrote the last paragraph, here's a thing that happened. And then as I wrote that up, it was like, man, there was another move. Mm-hmm. And I think in the the omnibus Instagrass post I put up, I just said, screw it. I can't yeah. keep up anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so they signed Brandon McCarthy. Uh, they did for four years, which I think is a little bit of a surprise given his health track record. Yeah. Uh, he seemed like the kind of guy who was going to get two or three. Um, but he did pitch really well last year from a, a fielding independent perspective. Uh, and, you know, it's not a huge surprise that the Dodgers, Red Sox, Yankees, and Pirates, four teams who lean toward the nerdy side of things and don't really care about ERA when evaluating pitching, uh, aggressively pursued a guy who was ninth in baseball and ex-fit minus. Right, and it uh, yeah, should be noted, too, that I think once he showed up with the Yankees, uh, all of his uh, batted ball and chaining problems were gone, I think. Yeah, he yeah. basically had the second half that uh, his peripherals would suggest that he was going to have. Right, yeah, yeah. That's very convenient when that happens. Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of uh, one of those nice little reminders that uh, these metrics are actually have some use. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so so now the rotation. Uh, well, of course, it begins with Clayton Kershaw, Zach Greinke, Josh Beckett's retired. So Brandon McCarthy is uh, number three. Is where, where's Chad? Probably Hit Hinjin Rue would be. The oh yeah, Rue is three. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. McCarthy is the four, and then they'll probably add another starter in the number five spot. Right, right. And you know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Dave Cameron. There's no such thing as a number five starter. Yeah, I am familiar with that. Okay, that is yeah, yeah. especially true when you have Brandon McCarthy, probably. Uh, right. Like, I like I like Brandon McCarthy, but this is not a guy you should count on for 200 innings. And. Um, and, and the Dodgers, of course, uh, suffered from this concept last year or, or suffered because they did not respect this concept, right? I mean, they ended up giving innings to um, a, a small collection of ineffective uh, sort yeah, of Yeah, I don't know that that was entirely their fault, though. I mean, you know, they went into spring training with like, Chris Capuano and Paul Mahomes, and they had, like, extra arms, like, useful extra arms. <clears throat> but they just had so many injuries uh, that they, they couldn't, you know, patch all the holes. Is there sort of a... a critical number or rate of injuries where you're just like, yeah, that team just kind of gets screwed over by... I mean, yeah, I think that if you lose your entire rotation or something close to it, you're probably not going to have enough good arms in reserve. Like, I think we've talked about this before, it's really hard to get a quality veteran to hang out in the bullpen. Like, he's just not going to sit around waiting for someone to get injured. So you have a a low-quality performer in that kind of swingman role, and then maybe you have, you know, a journeyman AAA guy or two uh, who won't kill you, but you can't have five of those guys. Uh, I'm going to submit that um, there's certainly uh, I'm, that certainly I'm not surprised to find that no, this is not um, this is not the, the biggest of the deals that we have uh, that we have yet to talk about. But it's uh, it is sort of amusing for its predictability in that the White Sox and the Mariners are discussing uh, Diane Vesayedo. Yeah, there's conflicting reports on that. Okay. Uh, I think the out of Chicago they're saying it's close, out of Seattle they're saying it's not. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. But uh, Vicieto, a uh, an immobile outfielder with uh, right-handed power. A DH with bad plate discipline who strikes out too much and doesn't hit for enough power to justify his bad defense. It's the same player the Mariners have been acquiring for the last four years. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Still a lot of deals. Uh, oh, the, let's talk about. Uh, well, we'll start with the Tigers and Red Sox. They. This is. This is a clean, sensible trade between the tig- Tigers and Red Sox. Yeah, this is the trade that makes sense, yeah. and it's been rumored for a little while because it makes sense. Right, because because the the Red Sox, of course, well, they they need pitching, and they have an, they have an extra outfielder. Uh, the the Tigers, I, I'm I guessing, perhaps especially since the. Um, the departure of Austin Jackson last year. I don't necessarily know how that affects this, but uh, it seems as though they're thin in the outfield. They get Yuan Cespedes. 
Yeah, I think uh, if you looked at the Tigers uh, with Tory Hunter gone and Andy Dirks uh, designated for assignment and then traded to Toronto uh, and uh, Jackson traded last uh, last summer, they were uh, looking at Rajay Davis, Anthony Ghost, and J.D. Martinez as their regular outfield, which is not so great. Uh, and Cespedes will probably allow Ghost and Davis to platoon in center field uh, with Martinez and Cespedes handling the corners. Um, you know, it does cost them Porcello, who's probably just as good as Cespedes, so it's not necessarily an upgrade, uh, but I think they thought it would be easier for them to acquire a Porcello replacement than another outfielder uh, who could play regularly. Right, and for, I mean, uh, for the Red Sox, uh, you sort of have to go back a, a couple steps on the transaction tree uh, to, to understand what they're what they're substituting here. But at this point, Cespedes was surplus. Yeah, they didn't need him anymore. He was kind of in the way, actually. Right, right. So so they basically get, well, it appears in the moment as though they get a free pitcher, but that's not really the case because they're giving, what, Hanley Ramirez a bunch of money. So. Yeah, right. I mean, Cespedes was uh, repetitive or, uh, you know. Redundant. Uh, su- superfluous. Yeah, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, there's a good one. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with superfluous. Uh, because they gave $73 million to Rizny Castillo and they moved Mookie Betts from second base to the outfield and then they acquired Hanley Ramirez. So, uh, they didn't have, Cespedes didn't have to be superfluous, but after their move over the last four or five months, he has become so. He's become so, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and, uh, now you mentioned that the Tigers might, might find it easier to to acquire a, an arm uh wait 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 you you oh yeah to acquire an arm uh via free agency than an outfielder i think that's what you're or, saying or via trade via which trade. is what they did they went and traded uh, eugenio suarez uh and jonathan crawford in exchange for alfredo simon simone seaman uh, probably not probably not the third <laughs> probably not seaman <laughs> yeah. probably not i think we can agree <laughs> um the uh yeah, Jonathan Crawford, I seem to remember, uh, he pitched at the University of Florida, I think. I'm going to say that. Does that okay. sound about right? Sure. I actually know almost nothing about him. Yeah, I think he, I think he pitched at the University of Florida. That's what I'm, I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Um, and Eugenio Suarez, maybe, what, a decently good-loved second base, uh, shortstop? Does that sound right? Yeah, Suarez is actually kind of interesting in that he hit pretty well in the minors last year. Uh, I think he posted like a 150 WRC plus in AAA as a 22-year-old, which is pretty unusual uh, for a middle infielder. Probably not going to do anything close to that in the big leagues, but, you know, maybe a, a D.D. Gregorius type with a little less defense. You know, okay. maybe, a, you know, one to two win uh, utility infielder slash decent part-time uh, hole filler, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and probably allows the Reds to maybe trade Zach Cozart or Brandon Phillips without, you know, having a gigantic hole in the middle infield. Okay, well, let, let, let's get to the Reds in a second. But this, with regard to the Tigers, this leaves them. Uh, so the top of their rotation will will be very familiar to people. It's uh, David Price, Justin Verlander, Anibal Sanchez. But of course, no, well, definitely no more Doug Fister. Uh, he, he's been gone for a bit. Uh, no, no more Rick Porcello. Instead, we see some combination of Elf, Alfredo Simone and Shane Green uh, yep. at the back of that rotation. Probably green four, Simone five would be my guess. Okay, all right, you can. Yeah, that just seems a reasonable guess. You're a, yep. a uh, you're a well-respected baseball analyst. Well, not by everyone. No, 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 not by everyone. Yeah, I've read, I've read some comment threads. Yeah, yeah, or check my Twitter mentions sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The uh, uh, so so uh, actually actually pretty decent, especially if you if you like Shane Green, who was 
We've mentioned we've met we've met, if we mentioned recently. I don't know which episode. Uh, Shane Green, um, very strong in the year in the year uh, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, Green had a a nice kind of breakthrough season. We'll see if he continues it, but not a terrible number four starter, especially with a little bit of upside. Yeah. Uh, I don't don't love Simone as a number five starter uh, contender, uh, and I think this kind of continues the trend of the Tigers kind of being one of the ultimate stars and scrubs teams of Major League Baseball, where they focus very heavily on the top end of their roster at the expense of the bottom end, where you say, okay, well, whatever, we don't need a Eugenio Suarez because we have Jose Iglesias and Ian Kinsler. And then if Iglesias, you know, isn't healthy or Kinsler gets hurt, now what? You know, like, you had a uh, an option. Well, before they had Eugenio Suarez, so it was uh, you know, less of a problem, but... Yeah, right, and now they they have kind of opened up a potential hole in case of an injury or, you know, uh, underperformance from Iglesias uh, to where they don't really have the alternatives that they used to, and, and I think this is kind of the classic Tigers move, is to trade from depth continually and from the future uh, to load up on the present and then hope that everything goes well, and if you end up with Joe Nathan, close, you know, blowing games in the ninth inning, and you've you know gotten rid of all the good alternatives, then you're kind of hosed because your role players aren't good enough uh, to you know offset uh, the fact that your stars can't carry you by themselves. What are the stars? Do you have a sense of clubhouse dynamics when the the stars are like, hey, you guys are should be better? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I have never been a star, yeah. so I don't I don't know how you, that works. You identify with the scrub more? Yeah, I, yeah, right. I'm usually the crappy guy. Uh, who's like, hey, uh, I just kind of want to hang around. But, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, You're just apologizing all the time. Yeah. Right, yeah, please don't hate me. Uh, I would imagine that the Tigers probably have enough self-awareness uh, to be like, I'm making $25 million a year. Maybe that's why we can't afford better middle infielders. Right, yeah, okay. Um, all right. Hey, you know, I, saw the, I was looking at Nick Castellanos' numbers from this past yep. year. And he had a he had a rough year, Dave Cameron. He wasn't very good. Yeah, yeah. But that was... Uh, um, I don't think that was necessarily the outcome that was most anticipated because he's always shown a, a, some feel for hitting, hasn't he? He is a, a guy who hit well in the minors based very heavily on high Babbitts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a line drive, uh, you know, lower power, you know, not no power, but not a monster home run guy who strikes out a lot. And I think these are kind of high-risk hitting profiles. Uh, and uh, not a good defender, which is, you know, not a not a great combination uh, because if the BABIP doesn't come through and you're not providing defensive value and not hitting for a lot of power and you're striking out a lot, there's not a lot left. You know, I've, I've had this conversation with Kyle McDaniel a little bit, and I think we did it on the air recently. If you if scouts could just bucket, even not, you know, not precisely, but just give a bucket estimation, say this guy is going to have a three if, – if they could project the BABIP, that would be mm-hmm. very useful. Yeah, I, and I think uh, realistically it's probably one of the, the areas they miss on the most is when a guy posts a really high batting average in the minors based on a high bat appeal, he, you'll kind of see his inflated hit tool where they'll be like, oh, this guy's a really good hitter because he hit 330 in AAA. It's like, well, if you, it's almost all BABIP, and you know, certainly there's some skill to hit or BABIP, but we shouldn't think a 380 or 390 or 400 is going to carry over. And I think, you know, you could even apply this to a guy like Chris Bryant, right, who's a, you know, low contact slugger, but hit 340 in the minors or something. That's not going to carry over. He's going to hit 260 in the big leagues because he strikes out so much. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, but it's so seductive though to see those big, uh, those big offensive numbers buoyed up by, yeah. by a BABIP. Right. Um, and I, because you know, on the other hand though, you have uh, a sort of, Howie Kendrick type, who doesn't necessarily he, make, he makes more contact than Castellanos always has did as a as a as a minor leaguer, um, 
but does not necessarily have has not necessarily had excellent plate discipline numbers. Uh, every the uh, you know the general scouting report was he will hit for averages and he has hit for high averages and largely based on the BABIP skill. Yeah, but also with contact, right? I think that's the key. Is if you have one of these like aggressive kind of high BABIP approaches, but you make contact mm-hmm. and you only strike out ten to twelve percent of the time, then you can project a high batting batting average for that kind of player. When you have a guy like Castanos is striking out 20, 25% of the time, yeah. it's basically impossible to hit for a high average without also hitting for power. Well, uh, Steamer at the, this point calls, uh, yeah, right, he's, he struck out 24% of the time in uh, 2014. Yeah. Uh, of course, he's only 22, and uh, Steamer calls for a uh, a 19, 7, 19.7% uh, strikeout rate. So uh, that, would, that would make him better. Uh, make him better. It, it, yeah. in, in fact, uh, yes. In fact, it would. Also, maybe not a great third baseman. Yeah, not a not a good one at all. Yeah, was there any, but you know he's better than Miguel Cabrera. So there ever any on a relative scale, any consideration to maybe of having him feel uh, fill that extra corner outfield spot? Which they they tried that a couple of years ago, and I think he was even worse in the outfield than he was at third base. Oof. This is a, this is the kind of guy who's not going to be a good defender anywhere. Mm, that's tough. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Tough to take. Okay. Uh, oh God, where else are we? Um, Simone, we did, uh, have we, have we hit the big ones? We never really did talk about the Reds, but you know, they're, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. kind of a minor seller. Not a, not a huge, uh, traffic day for Cincinnati Reds fans, probably. Well, they don't have, uh, well, they don't have Simone anymore. Or, or Matt Latos, yeah. Or Matt Latos, right, who's also yeah. a Marlin now. Yes. Right, that's, that's who's the Marlin. Because they have Dan Heron now and, Matt and Lato. Matt Latos and, yeah. Uh, and maybe Jose Fernandez back, at, hopefully for everybody's sake, hopefully in May or June or something like that. Yeah, probably more June or July. Yeah. yeah. I was optimistic was what I was hoping for. Yeah, I wouldn't be optimistic about a guy who had elbow surgery, but that's just me. Yeah, that is that is just you, yeah. Dave Cameron. Uh, yeah, so they now have what? They now have D- uh, Discafani at the back of their rotation. Yeah, I think the the, the Reds basically uh, looked at it and said, you know, we can't afford to keep all these guys uh of the starting pitchers we have, of the four who are free agents at the end of the year, Cueto and Leak are the two we think we'd like to try and keep. We probably can't keep both. Maybe we can keep one. We definitely know we're not going to keep Lados or Simone, so let's trade them. Uh, maybe we can find reasonable replacements and not take too big of a hit and pick up some future value along the way. Right. Uh, Mike Leak, already already a free agent? Yeah, he came up pretty quickly. Yeah, I guess – well, actually, did he did he not pitch in the same – did he make his uh, debut, his major league debut, the same year he was drafted? He was one of those who came up quickly. Yeah, I think he uh, he spent like a month in the minors or something. Yeah, I, th- I um, it's usually, in fact, it's funny because I think of Mike Leake as a left-hander because he's, he's yeah, sort of he pitches like one. He's the crafty righty, <laughs> which yeah, is no. rarely seen. Yeah, I mean, he's like he came out of Arizona State as like a really good command ground ball guy, and that's what he's been in the big leagues. He doesn't mm-hmm. walk anybody, he gets ground balls, he doesn't miss a lot of bats, but you know, it's a it's kind of the Rick Porcello skill set. They're very similar pitchers. Right. The let's see, the Twins sign Irvin Santana looks like I saw four fifty four maybe. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and so the Twins have um, well, they had so much luck with Phil Hughes last year. That was that was a great move. They've had less luck with. Yeah, most other else. acquisitions. Yeah, the Ricky Nolasco signing is the kind of a counterweight to the Phil Hughes signing. Yeah, right. like you you want your pitching signings to go more like Hughes than Nolasco. Now wait a second. If if Nolasco and Hughes had had each other's seasons, right? So Hughes uh-huh. performed like Nolasco. Would you have been surprised by that outcome? Not really. I mean, I think more, uh, more surprised. 
I don't, I'm not surprised either way. I think both Hughes and Alaska kind of had a similar profile where their peripherals suggested they were okay and, uh, their ERA suggested they were terrible. And so you kind of look at it and be like, you know, there's some chance that, you know, the peripherals will eventually take over and one of these guys will turn into a good pitcher. And then there's some chance that, you know, the peripherals are missing on these guys and they just give up really hard contact and, uh, they're going to continue to suck. And so it's Hughes who regressed to the mean and Nolasco who continued to suck. I think if it had been flipped, I wouldn't have been surprised. If they had both continued to suck, that might have been a little bit of a surprise. If they were both good, that might have been a surprise. But the one went one way and one went the other way. Yeah, that's about right. The Twins had a, they, didn't they score a surprising number of runs this past year? Uh, more than people expected, but I think people expected like five. Oh, yeah, okay. So, you know, like the, the fact that they scored any runs at all was a little bit of a, like, oh, this offense isn't completely awful. Completely bad, yeah. Okay, uh, oh, Justin Masterson signs with the Red Sox. Yeah, more ground ball pitchers for the Red Sox. Right, right, because they, well, of course, Porcello's usually among the league leaders. Yep. Wade, Wade Miley's a ground ball guy. Joe oh, they also got, ball. that happened, that also happened since we last spoke. Well, it hasn't happened yet, but it is theoretically going to happen. Wait, that's a trade, that's a trade. That, that is a trade. Who yeah. are they sending away? Ruby Dioris, Alan Webster, and a third player. Oh, yeah, so, you know, I bet at this point, especially if this trade happens, Ruby De La Rosa and Alan Webster, regardless, they come from very different backgrounds, I assume. I, they will become bosom, they will be bosom friends. Yeah, they have moved together a lot. Yeah, they have, they have. Yeah. And I, I think they probably both spent, uh, together quite a bit of time at AAA Pawtucket this year. Yeah, and I think the interesting connection here is that they were both in the Dodgers system when Dijon Watson, who's now the Diamondbacks assistant GM, was uh, in Los Angeles, and he is familiar with both of them and probably uh, a fan, one would assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they have a guy named Mike Russell, who they hired from the, the Dodgers, who uh, reportedly pushed pretty hard for Robbie Ray last year, and then they've traded for Robbie Ray. So uh, the new collection of Diamondbacks talent evaluators are trading for guys that they have previously had in other organizations uh, and maybe wished they had not gotten rid of or uh, wished they still had. And we've seen that happen before, though. I, we would, I think we spent almost an entire episode of the podcast t- discussing that uh, with regard to the Cubs and the players they were acquiring. Yeah, the, the Anthony Rizzo chain following Jed Hoyer around is pretty famous. I think Jim Bowden uh, was probably the most famous for this and that he would just, like, Every top prospect he'd ever had with the Reds, he tried to acquire with the Nationals. Yeah. Oh, the uh, wait. So Red Sox rotation going into uh, next year now. I mean, it's uh, Buckholtz, Kelly, Masterson, Miley, and uh, uh, the other guy, Purcello. Uh, Purcello in some order. I don't think there is a one through five at this point, and they don't have a front line guy. So my guess would be uh, they're the- probably going to make a play for Shields or Hamels or. Uh, maybe Jordan Zimmerman still, or some, you know, someone out there who is uh, more of a number one than any of the guys they just acquired. Okay, all right. Uh, the Royals, uh, the Royals signed Kendris Morales. Yeah, they two, did. Two-year deal. Two seventeen. Mm-hmm. I predicted one nine, and I got laughed at. And then people were like, "Why would anyone give Kendris Morales nine million? <laughs> and I, I was, I was half of what he actually got. Well, how much uh, is Billy Butler gonna make this year? Uh, I think they turned down a $12 million option. They paid him a million to go away. Uh, I don't know. Isn't he – he's not the exact same uh, type of offensive player as Billy Butler, but it seems like the result could be the same. Yeah, they're very similar players. Yeah. Uh, but I Royals think Morales a little, more raw power maybe? Uh, a little more power, a little less contact, uh, a little older, uh, maybe a little worse, uh, and a little cheaper. So, you know, same idea, but, you know, 
not exactly the same. And and cheaper than Billy Butler because Butler yeah. signed for three thirty. Yeah, I mean they could have had Butler for one twelve, uh, or the marginal value of one eleven from not having to pay the buyout. And you look at two seventeen and say like, well, you know, maybe you were better off with Butler at one eleven than than Morales at two seventeen. But if they think Morales is going to bounce back, and last year's struggles were because he didn't have spring training and he sat out the first couple months of the year, you could say, you know, Morales is uh, maybe an above average big league hitter. Uh, and you know, <laughs> those are expensive this winter. Right? Has wait, has Morales had? A decent season since he came back from that year-long injury, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in Seattle, it was fine uh, for uh, the first year, and, yeah. and then not not so much last year. Not so much last year. Oh, yeah, I see that, yeah. 20% above. Uh, yeah. Fine. Fine is a good way to describe it. Yeah. Okay. All right, he's not great. He's a, he's a mediocre, okay player. Right. Uh, rule 5, you want to discuss that at length? Not, not at all. Not at all, yeah. I will say... Uh, um, well, oh, interesting though to see Delano De, De Shields uh, move, I suppose. Interesting to the point where at one at one point, I think when Ed Wade was still in charge at Houston, he was uh, De Shields was among the top prospects in that organization. Yeah, he was like a what the eighth pick in the draft or twelfth pick in the draft or something. Yeah, it was uh, not a, not a good selection. Right, and then uh, well because it ended up, I think he's not maybe great defensively, and then his offensive tools and this way come together. I think if you're available in the Rule 5 draft, you're not great at anything. You're not great at anything. Although, even since the rule change, Dave Cameron, in 2006, the Rule 5 draft has produced, or at least these sorts of players have passed through the Rule 5 draft, uh, an MVP and a Cy Young. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's one of those, like, anything can happen in baseball rather than there's a lot of talent available <laughs> in the Rule 5 draft. Yeah, all right, yeah. That's probably true. There's also, on average... Only one player in each Rule Five draft ends up to ends up averaging a, a win per season afterwards. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's about right. Yeah. And I'm going to guess it's David Rollins, the lefty who throws 95. Uh, no, I think that is someone else. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I don't know. If, does Rollins does Rollins throw 95? He's from the Astros. Yeah, he's a hard throwing lefty reliever. Well, anyway, he was on the French Five much. I forget he threw 95. Really? No, he tops out in 95. Tops out. Thumps out. Yeah, you didn't season. You could you could start him. You could have him play the year in the bullpen. See what happens. I think that's what they're gonna do. Well, they should. That's and, mostly. And then they'll probably he'll he'll get Rule Five injured at some point when he's not pitching very well, and he'll mysteriously need to spend two months on the table. Yeah, yeah. He it's essentially the the I mean what the Rule Five draft is mostly is an opportunity to find like your fifth reliever. Yeah, the Rule Five draft is an exercise in silliness. That's what nope. it mostly is. It it, it has. No, I'm not going to defend it. <laughs> We're done also. We've been on for 50 minutes. Yeah. This is an exercise in silliness. Oh, man. I had my basketball game, my first coaching basketball game. Did you win? No. God, no. No, no. It was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and I did a bad job as a coach, and my players hated me. Uh, it was, well, it was uh, the back camp trade then. Yeah. Oh, God. It was a real It was a real mess. I think it's going to be better down the road. but How much did you lose by? Uh, I lost by 30. Oh, yeah, that's not not a good debut. No, 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 no. I mean, so it was weird because it was against a team. It was against a smaller school that only has um, – they have about maybe half or a third the enrollment, but they only have one basketball team. And I coached the – I coached essentially the fourth team of the school at which I'm at. Okay, so you have all the kids who are uh, they're just, not athletic. They're not athletic. Well, I mean, in, even if they're athletic, um, uh, like nine – uh, 80% of them, I don't think, have played organized basketball before. 
Okay, so you have like a team full of Dan Vogelbachs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just have kids who've never who never really played basketball before, so it's uh, that's going to happen, I think, again. Yeah, that scoreline. Well, uh, sorry, we hit a couple threes. That's all right. Yeah, I'm a bad coach, so I was. <laughs> I, I, I'm not surprised. Why? Why, why Dave Herman? Uh, you you strike me as maybe not aggressive enough to be a good basketball coach. I, it's yeah, it, it is a question of caring at some level. I do care. <laughs> I want everyone to be happy. Right? right. You seem to to maybe not be mean enough. Like the good basketball coaches all seem angry. Yeah, and unhappy though, right? Yeah. Right. Have you ever met like a, just like a really happy basketball coach? No, they are all, like mad all the time. They are mad all the time because they always have, and this is how it is. Like you know, you look at you're like, oh, here's a one three one defense. This is how it should go, right? And you you know you look at how it's illustrated. You say, oh, that's great. That's going to be great. But then when it's actually you have the platonic ideal, but then when it's actually in play, it's miserable. Yeah. Um, or, did did you run like a one 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 defense? Instead? <laughs> Yeah, they never suck coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, all right. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> We're done. I think uh, someone tweeted at us a little while ago and said he was unsubscribing from the podcast because of your repetitiveness. Yeah. And uh, that, 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 of it. that reminded me of that, yeah. Yeah, I think people generally – I mean, I'm not saying uh, – I mean, I'm not doing – it's not – it's 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 probably an affectation, but it's an affectation that is that is so much a part of me that I cannot quit it. Yeah, it's so it's part of your character. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Just hey, you got to be yourself, Dave Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, a real pleasure to, to speak with you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, hopefully we won't do it again tomorrow. No, we're not doing it again tomorrow. I'm taking tomorrow <laughs> off. Like I don't care what happens. They, you know, <laughs> the, the Yankees could implode and uh, the sport could shut down, and yeah. I will not write about it. Hey, guess what? Get ready for <clears throat> the rule five, rule five draftees by the projections, David Cameron. Uh, I'm glad I will not be around for that. <laughs> Tomorrow right. is the day you can publish whatever crap you want, because <laughs> I am not going to be editing. You won't even notice it. Yeah, I will have no idea. What a good editor. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, and making his third appearance of the week. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.